Well, Merry Christmas. It's awesome to see all of you here today. Thank you for joining us. If you're watching online or outside, we're excited to just be together as we approach Christmas. And, uh, you know, one of the things I got to talk about before we hit Christmas is uh, the fact that oftentimes churches, we overfocus during this week and we forget that there's this thing called January that's right after Christmas, right? And so we wanna make sure that you guys know what's coming up also in January, and it's something that we're excited about. It's actually this, uh, you've got a card on your seats about it. It's a, this parenting conference that um, our family team has been able to put together, and we've got some actually, some, some, interna- or some nationally renowned speakers. Uh, Jim Burns and Kara Powell are coming out, and then we've got a, a local guy, I'm a friend of mine named Scott Burnett. He's, they're each gonna be, here and this is absolutely going to be worth it because I'll be honest, I'm a dad of four kids and man, as I'm trying to raise my kids in this current culture and I grew up in the 90s, I'm like, what happened to our kids these days? Anybody else feel like that? Like my parents thought we were nuts. And so that was, so it's been really interesting to seek advice, to seek better counseling, how to raise our kids, especially in a world that is, to be quite honest, is is, uh, every culture is sick in some some ways and our culture seems to be almost like growing in its sickness in some ways. And as if you're with me on that and you're struggling, like how do I teach my kids about healthy sexuality or what do I do to really help them have a, a faith that sticks in their life because everything seems to be aiming at those things. These, um, these speakers are there for that. Jim Burns is going to talk on healthy sexuality and Kara Powell is going to talk on sticky faith and then uh, Scott's going to come in and tell us how we can help kind of arm our homes uh, to, to keep out the stuff that's pursuing your children through the internet. It's a, it's a really good little conference. It's going to be, uh, lunch will be includes $45 per person. There's an early bird, uh, the early registration is that and we're just uh, excited that you guys would be a part of this. We've opened it up to other churches, so we're pretty sure that the seats are going to go pretty quick. And so we wanted to let you guys know that's happening, because I really do think all of us at some level need some help, need some advice, need some direction. So if you're interested in that, let us know. Um, you, can, uh, you can see all the information you need right here on the handout, and we would love to get you connected. Um, because, yeah, we live in a, in a crazy time. I think one of those interesting things that help us see the difference in our time period is, is just how much our culture has gotten focused on this thing called the anti-hero. Anybody ever heard of the anti-hero? The anti-hero is where you take the villain of, of a story and you turn him into the hero. And, and so literally, most of you didn't realize this was already happening to you back in the 70s when you all thought Star Wars was about Luke Skywalker. And it's not about Luke Skywalker. It's about Darth Vader, right? The whole thing we find out is about Anakin Skywalker and Darth Vader. And we all thought he was the bad guy because he was all dressed in the black cape and, the, and had the deep, mean voice and stuff. And um, no, no, no. We, he, the villain in this story was actually the, the, the protagonist, the one you're supposed to want to know more about and dig in deeper with. And this is actually caught on. This is kind of something our culture does. Uh, one of the big ones that really moved this forward was a series of books that one of them became a musical called Wicked. Any Wicked fans in the room, like people who enjoy this? And it's all about the Wicked Witch of the West and how um, she and her sisters and all this mess and what really is going on in Oz, the secret understory kind of stuff. And so it's fascinating that we've taken all kinds of bad guys, including the two worst in the Disney lineup, right? We've got Cruella and Maleficent. We've done entire backstory movies. We've turned them into legends. And so we painted in from these villains into this sudden like, hey, here's how they got that way. Maybe you're a fan of Breaking Bad or you've seen things like that, but our culture is into these kinds of movements of bad guys. And I think it's because 
partially one, maybe we want to blur lines between good and evil, but maybe it's also there's a sense that people relate more to the bad guys than to the good guys all the time. That you look at the good guys and there's just these superheroes and I don't know about you, but you know, my wife's a little five foot, you know, four lady and I can't imagine her jump kicking me and knocking me to the ground, you know, like, like some of these superheroes supposedly do because obviously it's all make-believe. Superpowers, don't got any. You know, super morality, wish I had it. You know, and then you see the bad guys and you see their backstories and you're like, oh, I, I, yeah, I guess I can relate a little bit to that. That's weird. And so there's this tension in our culture about trying to relate to the bad guys. And so don't be surprised that we have a bad guy in the Christmas story, too. And uh, most people are like, really? Who's the bad guy? Well, it's the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. His name is Herod. And we see him here. This is actually a bust of a guy named Herod the Great. He was called the king of Israel or the king of the Jews at the time. So as the king of the Jews, Rome had stamped him in charge of Judea. And so he is there as this non-Jewish king. And the Jewish people could not stand the fact that he wasn't Jewish. He was Edomian, which means he came from Edomites, which is their background. But this guy is funny because he, if you want to talk about a star of Christmas. And when we talk about celebrities and stars, we mean somebody who would be a household name. Herod would have been the household name. Everybody would have known who Herod was. Asked him who Joseph was. They'd been like, I don't know, my cousin down the street or Mary, you know, they wouldn't have had any clue about any of these other characters we've looked at. But you talk about Herod, everybody knew Herod. And what's interesting is that today, most people, when they hear the Christmas story, have no clue there's a villain because he doesn't show up on your nativity scene. You don't take a little Herod and set him in the background to loom over everything, like staring down at the nativity, like, <laughs> he's just, he's gone, he's erased. In fact, in some, in some Christmas movies, the worst thing that happens to Mary and Joseph is they have to travel three and a half days from Nazareth to Jerusalem. That's so horrible, it's so difficult. It wasn't that difficult or horrible. You were traveling with a family of a caravan. There were lots of places to stop, traveled all the time. No, Herod's the problem. Herod is, is the bad guy. In fact, he was raised in a household of uh, politicians, kind of born and bred to become this next politician in Rome, good friends with the Caesars. He ends up moving into Jerusalem as the king of the Jews, and he tries to pacify them with all kinds of different things. Most of it's building projects. He, he forms a, the fortress of Masada, which is right here, where they end up actually having a Jewish revolt and, and dying in their final ends there. Uh, but what's interesting is this is his big, one of his big building projects, along with several cities, um, including Jerusalem's kind of rebirth. And he takes the actual temple of Jerusalem and cleans it up and makes it beautiful, puts gold on it everywhere, works on it for 46 years, just pours money out of the treasury into the temple of the Jews. And, and so this guy, Herod, winds up being somewhat liked except the fact that he's a paranoid maniac. And I don't mean that lightly. Uh, it just, if you heard of Herod, you'll realize real quick, this guy did not like anybody who tried to claim that they could be the king, the true king of Israel, the true king of the Jews. In fact, he had a favorite wife named Maranmei the first, because he also had Maranmei the second. I guess he just liked the name. But um, he, his wife, Maranmei the first, loved her so much, he had that kind of attitude of, if I can't have her, no one can. So he would put a special guard around her when he left town, that if he was killed while gone, they were to kill her so that she wouldn't become anybody else's bride. I mean, he, he was such a nice husband, right? Even had Maranmei's parents killed so that she wouldn't go visit them while they're off. And, but Maranmei was this tough as nails kind of girl. 
She wouldn't take nothing from Herod. And so she would stand and, and like talk to his face and fight back. And that kind of ticked Herod off just enough that he then killed his favorite wife eventually out of just a, a rage. In fact, Herod would go on to kill his two of his own sons who were trying to jockey for position of the kingdom. And this is only a small list of the many people he had murdered out of his political ambitions. Herod is nuts. One of the crazy people of history who was given power. And, and what's interesting is that this guy shows up in the Christmas story. Like, we've been asking this question. God could pick anybody he wants to put in the Christmas story. God could have chosen any setting, any scenario, but he chose Herod to be there. Herod as the villain. Herod to be in this situation. Why? Why is Herod showing up? What's the point? Why is he there? Because we have all these legends and all this stuff, and Herod doesn't need any legends. He has plenty around him. But we want to get to the core of what the text actually was saying about Christmas. And so that's what we've been doing. And today we're going to look when this final one on Herod. And then on Christmas, we'll look at the true star. We'll look at Jesus. But go with me there. If you've got a Bible, open it, please, to Matthew chapter 2. If you would join with me there. If you're at home, grab a Bible, please, uh, outside. We want to make sure you guys have these open. I want you in the Word. I want you guys knowing your Bibles well. Um, I don't want you just trusting your apps all the time because they can vanish. You need to know your Bible. So grab that. Have a pen ready. Be ready. Take some notes. We're going to dive into this starting in Matthew chapter 2. It reads this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, that's the Herod we're talking about, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Yeah, you think? Maniac hears there's a new king of the Jews coming. And so all of Jerusalem's freaked out. Everybody's messed up. They're all troubled. What I find interesting is that this troubling aspect is something that uh, we should highlight and kind of understand for a minute. Because Herod's going to represent something for us. He represents a long line of what I'm going to call the power hungry. And so Herod is this picture of the power hungry in the scriptures. And he's not the first. The first actually shows up in the garden. This power-hungry being that would appear as a serpent in the garden of, in chapter 3 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, comes out as this one who is going to fight against the will and the desire of God. And the way he was going to do that was he was going to take down the king and queen of all of, of, all of the earth, which would be Adam and Eve, right? So here are the appropriate rulers of the world given to them by God, and, and the serpent says, no, 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 I'm going to take these people down. And what's interesting is he's the first usurper of power. He's the first person to basically try to stop God's plot and plan to bring about his kingdom on earth. And he pretty much succeeds, but this picture keeps rising up as God continues to bring about a new movement. You'll see it with Babel and, and this guy named Nimrod. There's a similar motif there, you have, and then it ends with Noah, and then it kind of continues forward until you wind up in Egypt, and then you have Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is well known as somebody who's standing against Israel. He's a picture of the chaos, the demonic, of this picture of the darkness, and he's opposed to God. And so much so, he's going to take the children of Israel, God's people, and throw the boys, the little boys, into the river of the Nile. Have them eaten by crocodiles. If he can't do that, then he's just going to basically enslave and oppress until they're all destroyed. 
And we've seen this as we've been working through Exodus. We'll go back to Exodus in February. But what we're looking at here is another situation of a king with power, a hungry person, hungry, a power-hungry person trying to contain and hold back God's movement. Shows up again as we roll through to a guy named Saul. Now, Saul would be considered the first king of Israel. He was uh, chosen out of the tribe of Benjamin. But the problem with Saul was Saul didn't ever want to do it God's way. Saul always wanted to rule according to his route, according to his idea of how to make him be. And so when God would say, go over here and do that, he would go over there and do this. And so there was this constant tension to where finally God sends Samuel and says, I'm done with you, Saul. In fact, God's tearing away the kingdom from you. He's giving it to somebody better than you. And when Saul finally figures out that this is David... One thing Saul wants to do more than anything else is kill David and remove him from ever receiving the throne. He stands opposed to God's king. He stands opposed to God's rule. He stands opposed to God taking the control. And so the power hungry have this tendency, just like Herod will, to look at a scenario of when Jesus moves in with his kingship to go, oh, no, you didn't. I'm going to stop you right there. And this is very interesting because what we see then is that this power-hungry group of people, this power-hungry kind of picture, are troubled. Again, it says when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. There's a sense of the power-hungry when Christ steps into their life or steps in claiming the throne or claiming power, be it governmental, be it whatever, they are troubled and everybody around them should be too. Because bad stuff's about to happen. You ever met somebody who's power-hungry? Kind of get a little troubled? A little frustrated. You've heard of some of these. I'll give you a couple examples. The Chinese Communist government. They literally will shut down churches when they start preaching not about Jesus as Savior. They love that. Yeah, save you from your sins. Send you off to heaven. We're okay with that. What they're not okay with is when Jesus asserts that he's king and that the kingdom of God is the one true kingdom and not the communist government. North Korea has just said, forget it, no Christians allowed at all. And in the, all these cases, they're willing to go so far as to shove Jesus as far out as possible to retain their power. We see it in Canada right now. As they've outlawed Jesus' vision of identity, Jesus' vision of sexuality, and they're locking away anybody who would say otherwise, including pastors and everything else, who'd be willing to preach Jesus' vision on these things. We feel it in our culture in many ways, where when you want to stand with the vision of Jesus and he comes in saying, I'm king, there are plenty of people that go, "Mm -mm, you don't belong in politics, cut that out, you need to go over there, be a little private religion, you guys are okay, right? That's some of the tension even in our current culture. But let's just set the politics aside for a second and let's take it another step further. He affects the rule of people groups. What do I mean by that? I mean, when King Jesus shows up to the rich, which by the way, all of us in the room, if you're kind of uh, relating ourselves to the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the globe. But in the sense, let's just think of the rich for a minute as the rich, as we would think of them. You have a lot of money. You have a lot of ability to do stuff. And it's Christmas time. Jesus tells you, hey, here's what you're going to do at your Christmas party. Don't invite your family. Don't invite your rich friends. Invite the homeless. Bring them into your house and the poor and have a party because they can't bring presents and they can't pay you back. And what do we say? I'm troubled. Is that really what he means? 
Maybe Jesus the King shows up in the middle of our situation as suburbanites here in Corona, and he says, listen, I've got a gospel. We got to get it to the nations. I want you to up and move and take it somewhere, or I want you to stay here, and I want you guys to get really uncomfortable because the gospel moves when people suffer, and all those comfortable people, like myself, go, we're troubled. Or maybe it's that um, he shows up to the youth group and tells all the teenagers, you know, you need to work hard and you need to love your brothers and sisters. And all of them go like, they're troubled. When Jesus calls us to love all people, regardless of their political positions, skin color, sexual proclivities, you name it, he says, no, I want you to treat others like you want to be treated. And that's disturbing to racists and bigots and people who are struggling with hatred. I'll tell you what, it, 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 he troubles me when he shows up. Time and time again, Jesus shows up proclaiming he's the king. And I remember this so clearly early on in my, in my walk with Christ. Um, I, I was set up, I'm going towards engineering, man, I wanted to... I could make money. Engineers, you guys make money, and I like that, right? He was like, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted that comfortable life. In fact, my girlfriend, you know, I would start talking about the Bible, and she's like, you don't want to be a pastor, do you? I'm like, no, no, no. She's like, oh, good. Oh, good, because let's make money first. Then we can go minister later. It's like, okay, that's, that makes sense, you know? Talking to my dad, he's like, oh, man, you, you put all this effort in. You got all your, your, your you've been accepted to Cal Poly. You gotta, you're you're going to be an engineer. And it's like, yes, engineering. And I have no problem with engineering. And then my friends sit me down. At Chili's, and there's something about this Chili's in Yorba Linda because lots of things happen. In fact, not just in my life. Somebody else told me the same thing during service that Chili's has like magic powers or something. And so it's like the first place I ever went to a date with my wife. And it was like the second time we went and got back together. It was, but anyway, this time I'm sitting with my friend Kurt and my friend Michael. And we'd been eating and hanging out, doing our accountability things around Christmas time, roughly like now. I head off to the bathroom, come back, and I sit down. And they look at me. They're like dead serious. And like, we had a conversation while you were gone. I'm like, oh, nice. They're like, no, listen, our dads are both engineers, and they are. And they said, and you are not an engineer. We really think you're supposed to be a pastor. Now, anybody who knows me and, like, works for me knows, like, Greg, that would have been the worst designed engineering stuff. I'm not detail-minded. My numbers are all over the map. But anyway, the, the bottom line is they were right, but I still didn't want to listen. No, we had sworn to each other, no way, we're not going to be pastors, it's not what we're going to do. We're going to go into the secular world, we're going to show people that Christians can make a difference in this world, right there in the secular field. We don't need to do that. It took God to basically a vision while driving down the 71 freeway on the way to Cal Poly Pomona to wake me up to the fact that I wasn't supposed to be an engineer. And then I went home and told my dad, who still swore I was supposed to be an engineer, but you know how that works, Right? Because when Jesus said go somewhere, my heart said no. I was troubled. Because here's the thing. Herod's in this text, not because we need a villain. Herod's in the text to remind us that we are the power hungry. That we are the ones who honestly, we're the ones who don't want to let go. When Jesus moves in to claim throne of your heart, you're the one who's going to not want to let go, just like I'm the one who's not going to want to let go. I don't like it when somebody comes in and says, I'm king of your life. Let, let somebody tell me what to do, and you're going to watch, I'm going to resist you. That's just my personality. 
as I think it is most Americans' culture, right? And Jesus shows up and says, uh-uh, Greg, I'm going to be king here. And so it really stinks. And I'm going to walk you through something that's a little difficult this morning. But I want to remind us, look, we want to think of ourselves as, as buff and powerful and angelic, right? Like, like we've been seeing, like, yeah, man, that's who we are. And to be quite honest, we're not. We just got to come to grips with the fact that we're all devils, okay? That's just the thing. Inside of me is a Herod. Who wants to resist God? That's just ugly. That's so funny. But, uh, you know, this is the problem. When the power hungry meets Christ, we want to plot to stay in power. We don't want to give up that throne of our own lives to God. We're, we don't want to let go and allow the Lord Jesus to become king of our lives. It, it's just, we're Herod's. We're the power hungry. And when we meet Christ, we plot. That's exactly what Herod does. Check it out. We'll keep going. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he does his research and he finds out, okay, exactly, yes. Number one, Bethlehem, check. Number two, when? Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained for them what time the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring, him word, bring me word that I, I too may come and worship him. Insert malevolent laugh here, right? That's how that works. And he has set out his plot and set out his plan to do one thing, as we see in verse 13, to destroy the child. He is not going to allow another to rule as king. It's his rule. He's got it. And ain't no little baby going to stop him. And so he's plotted and he's found. And guess what? This is us. When Jesus moves in and makes the declaration, I'm king, I'm God, I've come to earth, I'm here to rule over the hearts of men, I'm here to rule and bring my kingdom, this is my rule, my thoughts, my ways. You want to know how to think about sexuality? This is how, because the way I think is how you should think. The way I think about money is how you should think. The way I think about government is how you should think. The way I think about how you should care about people is the way that you should think. And that right there should rankle you at some level, because that's the claim of Jesus. And when Jesus shows up with that kind of a claim, man, we plot. Some of us got it earlier. I, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm, I've met a, I have a lot of friends over the years, and a lot of them have been atheists. And what's funny is, and, and this is a hasty generalization, I understand that, but the vast majority of the atheists I know made up the decision to become atheists in junior high. Now, I remember what I was thinking in junior high, but man, a lot of them made that decision. And what was interesting is to watch how they went through college. And what they would do is they would add layers to their reasoning why they remained atheists instead of challenge their reasoning. And so when I would sit with them, of course, they would challenge my faith constantly shooting, things, shooting at me because they'd done the research. And I'll be honest, a lot of atheists know the Bible better than the most of us in this room. Because they're researching it like crazy in order to try to make sense that they can defeat what is threatening them, which is the rule of a God over their hearts. And I mean, this isn't really, really my way of saying it. Thomas Nagel said it. Thomas Nagel is a, is a world-class atheist philosopher. 
He is uh, well-known out there in, in, all, in all of the academic world, and he actually promotes something called panpsychism, which is the new kind of version of consciousness, and you guys can research it. I don't need to go into all that. But he, he, that's his basic philosophical push. And even he himself, in his book, when being in, in, in an interview, recited this. This is his quote. He says, I want atheism to be true. And am made uneasy, note that, troubled, by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And when you have that kind of motivation, you are geared to find your answers and discover every way possible, even when the data points opposite, because you don't want it that way. And that just classically illustrates when Jesus moves into the life of anyone who doesn't want him to be king, they will find reasons why to simply remove him. Herod? We'll kill the baby Jesus. Us, we'll argue baby Jesus into a mythology. We'll, we'll argue Jesus into a concept. We'll, we'll move him out of, our, out of our box so that we can control him. You look, agnostics, if you're an agnostic, I have a question for you. Are you hiding behind agnosticism or are you being honest that you're truly agnostic? Because if you're truly agnostic, you will live the rest of your life now as if there's a God because you probably lived the first half like there wasn't. And if you're true that there might be a God, then give 50% of your life to the fact there might be or 50% of your life to the fact there wasn't. That would at least be honest. But really what it is, it's a cop-out to not think and to be challenged by the information. I really do believe it. I've met more agnostics who are willing to not engage than to engage. And yet Christians, we can be copping out too. Jesus moves up and he says, I want to be the king of your life. And we go, well, okay, I'll trust that you died on the cross for my sins. And look, we may actually be faking our faith in this room today. Yeah, you walked an aisle, you said a prayer, you may have even gotten wet. But when it comes to Jesus being Lord, when it comes to him being king of your life, you'd much rather just have him savior and have heaven. And so you haven't acknowledged that Jesus has demands on us, that Jesus is actually calling us to a life that he's designed, that he's put in place. And there's this tension, this challenge that we may be faking it, but you say, but I believe in God. Look, James puts it this way. You believe in God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. They respond. And it's a deep challenge. Because there's a Herod in each of us. It's not quite the same when you're truly a Christian as wanting to reject Christ, but it's still there. It comes in a different term, in a different form. I call it picking and choosing. And we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. This is why one of the hardest things about preaching is that you're supposed to like do what you say, you know, live out what you say, preacher. And I'm just, I've got a Herod in me. And the bottom line is that I don't. I have to like wrestle myself into being honest with the text. Because there are times I don't want to say what the text says because it's not popular and it's not interesting and it's not like cool for Americans, you know? It's like, yeah. And yet we pick and choose. I kind of view it like what Jesus is saying. is saying, you got this burden of the law on yourself. You're so overwhelmed, you're broken. Come to me, you who are burdened and heavy laden. Come to me and take my yoke upon you, he says. Learn from me. 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What I love about this picture is twofold. One, he's saying, listen, I'm not going to overwhelm you and break you with my laws. I'm not going to sit there and demand of you things that I can't enable you to do. In fact, here's what I'm willing to do with you. Come to me. Let's put the yoke on. Now, if you've never seen a yoke, you can go look it up online and, and, and take a look at it. But a yoke is a large bar. They would hang over two oxen or two donkey or two animals of the same kind. You never use two different kind or they pull against each other and hurt each other. And so first of all, Jesus is honoring you by saying, listen, if you trust me, you come take my yoke. You're of my kind. I'm the son of God. I make you children of God. Come be under my yoke. Come with me. And now I'm going to lead you. And there's always one lead. There's one lead ox and one following ox or one lead donkey and one following. Jesus, I'm the lead. Come with me and I will lead you in the way because where I go, you'll go because I've got you yoked next to me. And here's the thing, when you do, start to get away from the oxen who's in the lead, when Herod starts to fight the rule of Jesus, what happens is this, God goes, tug. You ever had that happen? I don't need a tithe. I mean, come on. I researched in the Old Testament, and the tithing in the Old Testament's 30%. You know, I need a tithe. I'm not a legalist. What's going on here? And Jesus goes, yeah, I know you're not supposed to tithe. I told you to be hilariously giving to, you know, Tithing, that's kindergarten stuff. You should move on to graduate school of generous, generously giving like crazy. Tug. Yeah, even I don't do that. Ow. Oh, man, you know, God, Jesus says, forgive. But not that guy, right? I mean, tug. But I don't tug. He's the no exception. Okay, dang it. Okay, all week long. Greg, stop preaching about evangelism. Go out and talk to people. But I got to write a sermon. Tug. That was my fight. Over and over, there's tugs because I'm yoked to Christ. His spirit will tug me into his line. And yet that still reminds me of two things. The Herod isn't dead in me, even though he, I wish he was. I need to be aware of it. And this is the thing. This is why I love the word of God, my friends. Brothers and sisters, hear me. It's the best psychologist you'll ever meet. He just filleted our hearts open to show us that we are rebels. I mean, I'm not asking you to follow me. But there's these people out there that think you follow your pastor. Man, I would love that church. That church doesn't exist. We follow Jesus. And even us Christians who admit we love Jesus have to admit Herod is there and the tug is there and the rebellion is real. And God put Herod there just to remind us, hey guys, when the king shows up, he demands your throne and it's just not easy. And can we just be honest with ourselves as we approach Christmas just to say, okay God, where am I pulling? Where am I tugging back? Because I want to know. Because if you're my king, i got to be aligned with you. You made the universe. You put it all together. You know exactly how it should work. And if you're trying to make me walk in that, I would rather walk in that than anything else. Because to be honest, when we don't, it, it, there's, there's, there's some issues. Herod's there not just to show us that we all got a Herod in us, but also to remind us of how far this can go. I continue on with Herod right now as he's now been tricked. 
So we pick up in verse, uh, we'll pick up in verse, uh, let's go 10. When they saw the star, speaking of the Magi, those interesting astrologers from the east, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and, is, and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And that fulfilled prophecy, he says. Then verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he ascertained by the wise men. I told you, maniacal and insane. And so what was once fields celebrating in the coming of the Messiah and the triumph of the angel's announcement has flipped to mourning on almost every home as every little pitter-patter of little boy's feet, just like the Pharaoh before, killed them off. We're not sure if this was a dozen to 25. There wouldn't have been a ton of children in the area. It's a very small populated town, but it's still a tragedy not big enough to be recorded in history, but fits Herod's profile to the T. Sadly, it may fit any of our profiles to a T if we had that much power, money, and politics as an excuse. Think of what our governments do today to use their politics as an excuse, whether it's the Uyghurs from the Chinese communists or what they do to Christian pastors. They lock them in small boxes, only about three, two feet by two feet and three feet tall. So they have to stand the whole time, leave them there for weeks. North Korea, where they literally will execute your family and leave you alive if you proclaim you're a Christian. Governments will do what they can and when they can because they have the power to retain the power. And those who want power will use government to keep power. We harm and stay in control when we think we're going to lose power. And here's the worst part about it. When we want to hold on to power, we do evil. We produce it. It's what happens with us because something's broken inside of us that doesn't line up with the good. And so when we're in control, I'm sitting on the throne, man. I'm guaranteed I'm going to mess something up. Anybody else here with me on that one? You mess something up in your life? And you're like, well, I wouldn't kill anything. And I, I, I praise God. <laughs> but what's really made me nervous recently is just how obvious this argument is. And, and forgive me for, if this bothers you, but I got to go here just because it is so clear in our current culture how obvious this is. Right now, Roe v. Wade is being debated in the Supreme Court, right? It's a big deal. And, and I get it. Like, look, if, if, it's, if it gets kicked out and uh, Roe v. Wade is ended, that doesn't end abortion because we live in California. It's still going to be here in the same exact way because California has already set itself up that way. Now, the thing is, in the tension of abortion, we as Christians who are, are pro-life, we believe in the life of the child and the life of the mother that both are to be honored as the image of God. Amen? Now, that brings a lot of difficulty in a world in which the new argument is abhorrent to me. 
But listen to what you're hearing. The new argument isn't about a choice. The new argument is that abortion is a good. And they will literally argue right now, and you will hear it. It's called the pro-abortion argument. Not pro-choice argument. Pro-abortion argument is it is good that we kill our children because then we retain the autonomy over our bodies and our future. Autonomy is another word for we keep the control. And that's exactly what goes on. As we take genetic children, genetic human beings, for the sake of our futures. Now, I get it, and it is not an easy, and that's why the balance is difficult, because there are young ladies and young men who are making a choice to have sex. And guess what? Not ever, all sex leads to pregnancy, but as far as I can tell, all pregnancy comes from sex. And while we've divorced those two with fascinating scientific abilities, that is still the equation. And from a choice that was made and a a sudden natural response that God designed into all of us. We don't want God's natural rule over us, let alone Jesus' personal rule. And the same results continue to happen, be it God's natural or be it our personal, because even in the church we have rejected God's personal rule in ways that have harmed people. And let me be careful in this, but I want to explain some of the things that we've seen. Look, in the 1980s and the 1990s, as homosexuality grew as a political movement and a movement crying out that we had to accept them, there were some abhorrent things done in the church. Abhorrent things said in the church. So much so that there were people who are Christians, dedicated, loving Christians, who didn't know what to do because now they felt like they struggled with some special sin that was beyond all other sins. That somehow same-sex attraction had literally become a thing that, oh no, God, you're not even welcome. Jesus wouldn't even... And this is, this is horrific because, to be quite honest, there's no temptation that has come upon you that is not common to man, the scriptures say. That temptation is not uncommon. That sin is... Yes, many people pointed out the Bible calls... That an abomination calls homosexuality an abomination. You know what else he calls them an abomination multiple times? Arrogance and pride. And what I saw in the church was a lot of arrogance and pride as we were losing a culture. And so what did we do? We did not take the way of Jesus. We took the way of Herod. And we tried to control. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't, in our country, have the right to make our argument. We should have our right to make the argument, and we should make good, powerful arguments for why sin is sin. Whether it's pornography, adultery, lust, homosexuality, transgenderism, you name the sin, we all a part of it, folks. Amen? And if you're saying no, you're a liar, and King Jesus is pulling on you, right? It's because we're all sinful. We're here because of that very reason. And what I saw was, and what I see is, is that we, we don't want to make these same problems because, and yet we will. We're, we're fallen. We're humans who have a Herod in us. And we will go to great lengths to plot and control even harming people. And look, we didn't mean to harm people. We don't want to harm people. But the bottom line is Jesus is like, it doesn't take much to murder somebody. Remember what he said? You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. We're going to sit down with family members at Christmas who don't agree with you politically. Who may actually think you're crazy for being a Christian. You're going to sit down with people and talk and invite people to church that, that honestly, they, they believe that you know, the universe is God, or they believe that um, there, there's a God, but they don't know who it is, and they think that you're arrogant for even knowing. But can we not call them names online, in person? These people have read our posts. And look, sometimes we let Herod get away with it, right, in our own souls. And King Jesus is like, no, let's correct back, let's correct back. And I know this is a hard, hard kind of, you're like, this is not Christmas, but I, w- I, want you to, <laughs> I want you to hear me. This is why he's there. King Jesus, come. You want the victory? Hang on, we'll go to Easter. But right now, King Jesus moved in. And every little king and every little queen is going to fight back. We struggle. We wrestle. And I get it. Because there's one thing the human heart longs for. You want to be free. I really believe it's all a struggle to be free. And right now, we believe one lie in our culture. If I ruled myself, I would be free. No one could tell me what to do. I can be who I want to be and be what I want to be. I am free. And that is the greatest lie. Because if everyone lives it out, And everyone's free to be whoever they want. When you start interrupting each other, you will turn to power to ask the power of government, of church, or something else to tell them to stop doing that because they're stopping me from being who I want to be. And whoever has the levers of power wins, and everyone else is in chains. It can't be that way. You will always rule one way or the other. In fact, what's crazy about that freedom is it's the wrong definition of freedom. I always think of that kind of freedom. I get to do whatever I want. I call that monkey on a keyboard freedom. You guys ever heard of monkey on a keyboard freedom? Right? I think I've explained this before. Here's a keyboard. I want you to imagine that there's a monkey that I've had trained. I would have loved to have had a trained monkey. You know, like, Brad, figure out how to do that for me. Um, you get this monkey up here, and he climbs up on a little pedestal, and suddenly he looks at the keyboard, and we turn it on, and he goes, bang, 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 bang. And we're like, Tchaikovsky. That's not art. He's banging on a keyboard. Suddenly he starts chewing on the keyboard. We're like, what art? It's like performance art. No, it's a monkey on a keyboard. There's no freedom there. He's bound by his very monkey nature to not know music. Do you know who's truly free in those scenarios? The musician who has trained his hands and his ears to play whatever he walks up to. That person's free on the keyboard. This is what Jesus is getting at when he looks to those Jews who had believed in him and he says these words, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you, what? Free. It's called bounded freedom. 
God created the warp and the woof of reality around you, the keyboard. And he has given you every instruction and the ability to, to live in that. But we reject it. We want to do it in our keyboard. We want to bang on the keyboard. And so we make awful music. We break the keyboard. We break the people who are part of the keyboard. And we do these things. But Jesus is like, no, if you'll let me move in. And my, my thing's not heavy. I'm not going to crush you. In fact, what you're going to find is you're free. Because I will walk with you. I will be yoked to you. I will guide you. I sit on the throne and I align you with reality and you become truly who you are and you play Tchaikovsky with your life. Or rather, I should say, you play Jesus with your life. The genius who lived perfectly that we still quote and we've based our entire civilization with its sciences and its thought and its morality and that we're quickly wanting to throw out. But my friends, what you have is an opportunity to just meet the one who sees your villain and my villain. And yet he still came. And I want to introduce you to that Jesus on Christmas Eve if you don't know him. I can't wait. But today I just want to go to the hard part. We have to face the Herod in our souls. Because if you don't, I don't think we'll savor the joy that comes with the freedom of Christmas. I don't think we'll grasp the victory that is found in your faith. So on this Christmas Eve, I want to encourage you, come, all you faithful, joyful, triumphant that's what we're coming to do for he is our victor in our souls and I pray that you would find the freedom that is in him would you bow your heads with me well father you're just so good at just messing me up opening and showing us our souls and thank you that you love us anyway. Thank you that Jesus would bear our sins on the cross anyway. Thank you that you would not crush us in your rule, but you would make us rulers with you. Thank you that you give us this dastardly villain to remind us. Now nah, we're not much better in kind. Maybe degree, but not kind. Thank you that you've loved us anyway. And you've changed us. Lead us into this Christmas season with joy and triumph. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.